0: So I recently uh, revisited an article that I came across last year by a journalist whose name is Andrew Sullivan. And some of you are familiar with Andrew Sullivan. He writes a number of different peer articles and, and whatnot. But he wrote this fascinating article entitled, I Used to Be a Human Being. And the subtitle reads, an endless bombardment of news and gossip and images has rendered us manic information addicts. It broke me. It might break you too. And he goes on in the article to share about how he checked himself into a 12-day meditation retreat digital detox. And he says, I needed help, quote, for a decade and a half, I'd been a web obsessive. Each morning began with a full immersion in the stream of internet consciousness and news, jumping from site to site tweet to tweet, breaking news story to hottest take, scanning countless images and videos, catching up with multiple memes. I tried reading books, but that skill now began to elude me. (laughs) Has that skill eluded anyone else recently? And then he says, I tried meditation, but my mind bucked and bridled as I tried to still it. Now, of course, Andrew Sullivan is not alone. Just look around you, or um, I understand that at 9.30 each week, your, um, the amount of time you spent on your phone updates from the previous week, so you could check it out. See how much time you actually spend. Or just look around you. You know, people crouched over their phones as they walk the streets, or drive their cars, or walk their dogs, or play with their children. And observe yourself, you know, in line for coffee, or at a quick work break, or driving, or just going to the bathroom, or visit an airport and see the sea of crane necks and dead eyes. And we have gone from being a people from who look around to constantly looking down. And then he writes this. He says, look, he says, the reality is is you are where your attention is. You are where your attention is. The family that is eating together while simultaneously on their phones is not actually together. The couple that is on a date looking at their phones is not actually together. They are, in Turkle's formula, alone together. And so if you're watching a football game with your son while you're texting a friend, you're not fully with your child and your child knows it. Truly being with another person means being experientially with them. And that's kind of interesting because he closes out this article, and it's in a secular uh, newspaper. It's in uh, uh, the New York uh, Magazine. And, And he closes it out by talking about the detrimental effect that our digital engagement is having on our faith. And listen to what he says. He says, the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction. There are books to be read, landscapes to be walked, friends to be with, life to be fully lived. But this new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shift shape under pressure. The threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget we have a soul." Now, I'm not sure that he's right, that the greatest threat facing our faith today is distractions, but I think you'd agree it's a big threat, isn't it? I mean, has anybody else found just like there's something happening inside of you with this culture we inhabit that is destructive, it is hindering, it's compromising your ability to be still and to hear from God and to draw near to God? And so we, we began a series a couple weeks ago, entitled Abide, Practicing the Presence of God. And really, the premise of our series is, in the words of Dallas Wellard, he said, look, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls, And so we have been talking together about practices and habits and disciplines that help us keep near in our souls to God. In other words, we've been been talking about disciplines we can engage in that help us practice and cultivate a life enjoying and living in the presence of God. And so we began the conversation a couple weeks ago talking about the discipline of silence and solitude. And you know, Jesus withdrew often to be in a quiet place by himself. And if he needed to do that, then you and I probably would do well to do that from time to time. Amen? And we talked last week about the discipline or the practice of prayer. And today, what I want to talk about is uh, I want to talk about the regular, thoughtful, prayerful engagement with Scripture. Now, I wonder how you feel about the Bible. Now, I think there's probably a lot of you who love the Bible. You love reading the Bible. Uh, I think, though, there's a lot of us that like the idea of the Bible. Uh, We like the idea of reading the Bible, but actually, if we're honest, the experience is just not that great for us. It's confusing. Sometimes it's disturbing. And we're wondering like, what on earth is going on in this passage? And is it okay for me to think this is weird? Or is it, am I not being reverent enough? Or I wonder how you feel about reading the Bible. And so today I want to talk though about how it is this regular thoughtful, prayerful engagement with scripture, that is one of the fundamental, non-negotiable disciplines that we need to develop if we're going to learn this practice of the presence of God. And in Psalm 1, the psalmist writes about kind of the engagement that he is inviting us into when it comes to the Bible, and he doesn't invite us simply into reading it, but into what he calls meditating. Look at what he says. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So he says, look, um, there's a kind of meditation that comes out of the Eastern traditions. uh, And this meditation can be good and helpful. It's about kind of emptying the clutter from your mind and being still. But what the psalmist is describing here is an ancient form of ancient Near Eastern meditation that the Jews practiced, that Jesus himself practiced. And it was about putting truth in the mind and reflecting on it and thinking about it and praying over it. He's talking here about meditating on the law of the Lord. And he attaches a promise to it. It's as if he's saying, look, do you want to become a person of substance and character? Do you want to become, over the long course of your life, a person of wisdom and love? He says, well, here is one of the keys. It is digging your roofs deep in this practice of prayerful, regular meditation on scripture. And he uses this graphic, beautiful, evocative picture of a tree that's planted by a river. He says, that person, your life could be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do prospers. And I think about Andrew Sullivan in that article. He was like a tree that was planted in the wrong kind of soil and was withering. But he says there's a different way of being and a different practice we can engage in the regular, habitual meditation on scripture. And so I want us to reflect a little bit on what we're talking about when we're talking about meditating on scripture. And I want us to draw our attention to this one word, meditates. And uh, this is a, it's a fascinating word. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's the word hagah, And I put the Hebrew up there, uh, not for any educational purposes, but just because Hebrew looks really cool. Amen. And so when I go through my midlife crisis, and I'm going to be that Gen X pastor that gets a Hebrew tattoo right here, and I thought I would get this word. It's the word "haga" or "yaga," um, But it, it's, it's interesting because it, it, it refers to, or it can be translated as murmur or mutter, which is what you did in an ancient culture where silent reading wasn't a thing. You read out loud. Or an oral culture where they didn't carry Bibles around, they had stuff committed to memory, so they'd be speaking it out loud. Anybody here like to talk to themselves? Anybody talk to yourself in the car, you know, out loud? Do you argue with yourself? Gollum and Schmeagle, you remember? Anyway, that's... But this is like, it, he's talking about, like, you know, talking about the Bible. <laughs> it's like, and... Um, Eugene Peterson, uh, the the guy who who did the Message Bible translation, points out that uh, this word hagah is translated in another part of the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, as growl or growl, kind of like a lion growls, you know? And so he puts it like this. As a lion growls, a great lion over its prey. And so we just imagine a lion chasing after a gazelle, you know, National Geographic Channel, and pouncing on the thing and tearing it apart and diving into it and starting to consume that thing. And then it gets all the way down to the bones, and it just starts to growl over those bones. Mm, mm. And he says, this is this is the kind of reading that he's envisioning. It's, it's the kind of a bone in the mouth of a lion reading. Now, I've been told that the the best nutrients you can get from an animal are actually the, the marrow in its bones. But the only way you can get at those nutrients is through this long process of chewing and growling and going back over it again and again. And, and he envisions people who approach the scriptures like that. Now, I want to suggest that this word meditates, it says something both about the Bible as well as how we ought to approach the Bible. What does it tell us about the Bible? The Bible doesn't yield its nutrients all that easily. And some of you have felt this. You feel like, I read it and I didn't get anything out of it. Anybody ever felt that way? You liars. (laughs) No, you you have, you know, and, and... And can we just be honest? Sometimes the Bible is just hard to understand, isn't it? And uh, one of my my favorite passages in the New Testament is when Peter, one of the apostles, you know, Peter, the rock on whom, you know, who gets the keys to the kingdom. Peter is reflecting on Paul's writings, and Peter himself says that they are hard to understand. He puts it like this. He said, our beloved brother Paul, bless his heart, our beloved brother Paul, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So he says, Paul has written to you scripture, but he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And if you have ever you know, struggled to understand the Bible. You're not alone. Peter struggled to understand. And Peter, Peter could have called Paul. He could have been like, bro, what, what do you even mean here? You know, like he could have connected, but he found it difficult to understand. And the Bible sometimes is hard to understand. Now, it opens well enough, right? I mean, the introductory, can you get better than Genesis 1? It, it meets our expectations as what the living word of God would do. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And we think, that's a banger, right? <laughs> I mean, that's a good way to begin the Bible. But then you turn the page, And you find yourself in a garden with not one but two magical trees and a talking snake. And then you keep reading, and just by the time you get to page eight, after uh, what's described as something of a global flood, which is hard enough to understand, we find so-called righteous Noah, and he is drunk and passed out naked in a tent. And then one of his sons, Ham, comes in and sees his father in all of his glory and goes out and tells his brothers we don't know what he says to them. Maybe he made fun of him or whatever. And then when when drunk Noah finally sobers up and comes to, he goes out and he does what every good father would do. He curses Ham, his son, and all of his future descendants. <laughs> one of these days I'm going to create a calendar. A Bible calendar with just that story depict- No, I'm just <laughs> But, but, but we just think, like, like why you know? And then, and, and quite frankly, Genesis and Exodus, these are some of the more easy books. Of the, I mean, they're, they're great stories. But then you get to Leviticus, and it's like you're getting careful, detailed instructions on how to arrange the body parts of an animal on a, sacrifice, on a sacrificial altar, and then you keep reading, and you get to highly detailed instructions on what to do with fungus on your walls and mold and um, skin diseases, and then a lengthy, awkward chapter on bodily emissions. And you're like, I like, I'm trying to read, and get, the Bible can be hard to understand. Now, let's just be clear on some of the reasons why that is. Number one, the Bible is old. The Bible's an ancient collection of writings. The newest parts of the Bible that we have are 2,000 years old. The oldest parts go back 3,000, maybe 3,500 years. And some of the oral traditions, they go way back. And, uh, And so the Bible is just very old. And sometimes things that are so old from a different part of the world, they're just different. And you've got to work at understanding them. Of course, the Bible is also foreign. And of course, we Americans are, we, 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 we are infamous for our inability at times to enter in and sensitively understand foreign cultures. Is that okay for me to say that about us Americans, you know? And it's like, what's wrong with them? Why don't they do it like Americans, you know? When you go to a different culture and they do it too slow and they don't come on time and what are they, you know, a wedding shouldn't last a full week. It should only be two hours, you know, whatever. <laughs> and why didn't the bride show up on time, you know? But, but, you know, like we do that when we enter a foreign culture and when you enter into the Bible, you are entering into a foreign culture, it's written in different languages in greek in hebrew in aramaic and they are people that that live in a radically different part of the world they're from a different social location they were primarily an oppressed group and and you know, they, they had different rhetoric and different internal logic for why they did what they did. And, and we can just dismiss it without carefully entering in and saying, why is it this way? Why are they thinking about it this way? So the Bible is old, the Bible is foreign, but the Bible is also diverse, you know, the, the tricky thing about the Bible is the Bible, you know, uh, although, you know, it comes to us chaptered and versed and wrapped in a nice genuine, leather, genuine imitation leather cover, right? But, but the Bible was a, it, it's, it's a collection of writings, that was written over a very long period of time. It's like an anthology of literature. Now, it tells one, ironic, i am strangely, by the inspiration of God, it tells one unfolding story. But it's a diverse array of literature. I mean, there's ancient treaties and law codes, and there's archetypal history, and there's mythic history, and there's monarchical history, and there's memoir, and there's erotic love poetry, the Song of Solomon, and there's proverbial sayings, and there's theological fiction, and there's biography, and there's uh, prophetic, poetry, and there's hymns, and there's letters, and there's personal correspondence, and there's apocalyptic literature, just to name a few of the genres. And so, when we approach the Bible, we have to learn, like, what are we reading? You've got to develop a certain amount of genre competence when you enter into the text of Scripture. It's not all one thing. And thankfully, it's not, right? Wouldn't it be so boring if if the inspired sacred text was just one, like, you know, like, I learned the acronym when I was growing up, Bible stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Like, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. Like, there's nothing basic about it. And there's, like, it's mostly narratives and poetry. There's no, I mean, there's, there's certainly instruction in there. But it's way more than that. It's way more interesting and beautiful and disturbing and convicting and challenging and shaping and gets into your skin. And so the Bible, the Bible is diverse, but the last reason, and this is the one I really wanna kind of like drill down on, and I think it, 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 it kind of is what Psalm 1 really evokes, is uh, the Bible is good art. Now, the Bible is more than art. There's history and poetry and apocalyptic literature and commands, and there's all kinds of stuff in there, biography, memoir, et cetera, et cetera. But, but listen, the, Bi- the Bible is good, it's, it's literature, and literature is art. And listen, if, if you write a piece of literature, if you write some poetry, and in 2,500 years from now, a couple billion people are studying it and reading it every day and more dissertations have been written on it than any other type of literature in the world, and uh, it's been translated more times, and it's, 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 like, generated artistic endeavors and thought and philosophy. If, if, like, you write something like that and people are using it in that way in 2,500 years from now, you have created, by definition, good art. It's what good art does. <laughs> Um, The Bible, you could say, is meditation literature. And what does meditation literature do? What does good art do? Good art rarely yields all of its treasures the first time around. Isn't that right? A good piece of art always keeps you coming back and coming back and going, oh my gosh, I didn't see it that way last time. And oh wow, look at, oh, and all of a sudden, this this is what the Bible does, you know, last year, uh, my daughter Mia had an English class, and in her class, she was asked to read a short story by Ernest Hemingway called The uh, uh, Hills Like White Elephants. And, um, and she was supposed to write an, uh, kind of like an analysis of this in an essay, and she read it, and she couldn't really understand it much, so she was like, Dad, you, you're into books, you're into reading, can you read this and help me understand it? I'm like, sure, honey, Dad can do that. And I read it, and I was like, I have no idea what this is talking about. So then I went online, and I went to Sparks Notes, and I'm like, oh, this is what it's, I'm like, Mia, you know. (laughs) (laughs) No, but but it's actually my first read. Like, it it, it opens at a bar in a railway station, and it's two people, a man and a woman, having a, a conversation, and then it ends. And there's no action. They don't go anywhere, they don't do anything, and I'm just like, the emperor has no clue. You're kind of like you go into an art museum and, and you see a Jackson Pollock and you're like, Pfft, I could have done that. You know, It's like, you shouldn't think that. But some of you have. But I read it. I was like, this, like, what, you know, this is, you know, they're just making, the English goes on and on. They, they, you know, they don't even, I'm like, this is about nothing. And then I read on Sparks Notes that it was actually a story about abortion. And I was like, abortion? Like how, what? (laughs) Like what? And I realized I missed one critical word in the story. And it was the word operation. And when I saw that, I realized that they were having a subtle... Conversation about a topic that in that day you could only talk about in very subtle, hidden sort of ways. And then all of a sudden, I was like, oh, man. And then I needed to read it again. I was like, oh, I, I think, is this making a statement about abortion? And then, and then Mia read it again and again, and she was like, no, Dad, I think it's, I think it's, about, I think it's about women. And then she said, no, I think it's about male-female relationships. But, but all of a sudden, it just started to open up. And friends, this is what happens when you go back again and again to good art. And this is what happens when you go back again and again to the Bible. Now, this week, um, like maybe some of you, I have been following through uh, the Bible reading schedule in the Abide Book booklet. So by the way, uh, there are more Abide booklets available today out on the back. I hope you saw that when you walked in. You can grab one if you didn't get one. But there's a Bible reading schedule in there. Some of you have been following it. And this week we read Matthew 14 to 19. And so uh, this week I saw something in Matthew I had never seen before. And I, I, it's like something just like, it was like, I, I, it was like opened up to me. And it was, a, it was a disturbing story, a story that had always bothered me. And it was a story where uh, it says in Matthew 15 that Jesus went into the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is a Gentile non-Jewish region. And Jesus was ministering to the Jews, so he went over into Tyre and Sidon. And when he walks in there, it says a Canaanite woman came to him. And this is significant because it's the only time in the New Testament where we get a direct reference to a Canaanite. And the Canaanites, if you know your Bible, were part of the old ancient enemies of Israel. And so they had a long, long, long long-standing dispute and mutual hatred. And this Canaanite woman walks up to Jesus and she says, "'Have mercy on me, son of David.'" My, my my child is demon possessed, and she keeps hurting herself, and and so he's, would you would you help? And the text says that Jesus ignored her. And we're like, Jesus, what you know. And then and then the disciples say, Lord, tell her to go away. Tell this Canaanite woman to go away. And then she cries out again, Lord, have mercy on me. Have she, she's down, she's desperate. And then the text, strangely, says that Jesus answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And you read that and you're like, Jesus, why are you being so un-Jesus-like? <laughs> like, people are like, Jesus, what do you mean? Like, you're telling this woman, you're calling her a dog, and you're saying that the, the bread which is a metaphor for his healing power, the kingdom of God with everything that it's come to bring is is, he's saying, it's not for you. And then she responds, yeah, Lord, but even uh, the the puppies under the table, under the dogs on the table, get the crumbs that fall off. And then Jesus says, I have not seen, this is great faith, and it will be for you as you have requested. And he heals and he frees her daughter. But you're wondering, like, why, like, why the coldness? And the it's so rude calling her a dog. And then, and then it occurred to me, and this is kind of where my mind started just to just be blown, is I started to look in the larger context. And there's a story that follows right on the heels of this in the very next paragraph where Jesus takes the healing power of the kingdom and starts giving it to the Gentiles in Tyre and Sidon. They start coming to him just like the Jews had come to him, but now the Gentiles are coming to him and he starts healing all of their diseases and casting out demons. And then the next story, it's a story, get this, about bread that he feeds to, guess who, Gentiles. In chapter 14, he fed the 5,000 with the uh, two fish and the five loaves In chapter 15, you get another story. This time it's healing, it's feeding 4,000. But it's in the region of the Gentiles, so we're to believe that the 4,000 are Gentiles. Now he's taking the messianic bread and he's giving it to the Gentiles. And so then I started to go, and then then I I remember the context of Matthew. There's one other part in Matthew's gospel where somebody who is a Canaanite, there's a veiled reference to him. It's in the first five verses, And it is where Rahab is included. She's a Canaanite. She's included into the family line of the Messiah. And then in chapter eight, when Jesus starts his healing ministry, the second person he heals is not a Jew. It's a Gentile. It's a Roman centurion. And Jesus says to that person, I have not seen such great faith in in all of Israel. And then he says, many will come from the east and the West and sit down at table, as it were, and eat bread with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the Messianic feast. They will share in the bread. And then I remembered the Magi came from the East, and now this Roman centurion is one who comes from the West. They're the first trickles of ultimately what God's ultimate plan is, which is to bring people from every tribe and nation and tongue and people into this Messianic community. And then it struck me, Jesus is not being rude in this text. Jesus is playing devil's advocate. Jesus is parodying a line that would have been very familiar for the Pharisees that he keeps confronting. They would have said, the messianic bread is not for those dogs. And Jesus speaks that as a, you know, like a, devil's advocate, and the woman combats it, and she says, oh yeah, Lord, and she comes back at him, and Jesus changes what he's gonna do. It's not because she changed his mind, it's that he was trying to evoke that all along. Now I, and then he gets to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and he says, go and make disciples of who? All the nations. And all of a sudden, this thread just, like, so. I, I've been reading the Bible for 30 years I had a exegesis in Matthew class, looking at the Greek text when I was in seminary in graduate school, and I never saw that before. And yet, yet new, you know, like you keep going. Like I have read that text dozens of times, and it's but sometimes, friends. Sometimes it's the troubling thing, it's the weird thing that you need to pay attention to, because that weirdness and that troubling thing can be an invitation to go deeper. What's happening here? Why that? Why this? What's going on here? You, you do that in all kinds of stuff and some of the most troubling stuff, like the violence in the book of Judges that gets, it's like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Like it's like, you know, like you're like, this is not G-rated for sure. And yet there's, some, there's something, there's a message coming there. So the Bible is good art and like any good piece of art, it demands you to keep chewing on it, and keep going back to it. Eugene Peterson put it like this. He said, look, the words of scripture, listen, these are words, and they're intended, whether confrontationally or obliquely, to get inside us, to deal with our souls, to form a life that is congruent with the world that God has created the salvation he has enacted, and the community that he has generated. There is such powerful things that God wants to do through his word that it doesn't come simply by a a textbook with all of the answers. It comes instead through this interesting array of literature, diverse across the centuries, that tell one unified story that ends in Jesus. And he says, such writing anticipates and counts on a certain kind of reading. The Bible counts on a certain kind of reading. And what kind of reading is that? A dog with a bone kind of reading. Listen, I I don't think I would get any argument from you guys if I were to say that we live in a culture that is short and getting shorter on its ability to have genuine thoughts about issues that matter. Instead what we do is we imbibe and we consume outrage and conspiracy theories and all kinds of nonsense and we don't even think. We don't ask questions. We don't go deep below the surface and ask what's going on below the and we, we do, and we cannot approach the Bible like that. We cannot be superficial Bible readers. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you all need to become Bible scholars. No, I I mean, like this is my vocation and I get to spend hours every week doing this sort of thing. It's not like the expectation of all people. We're in a community of learners and we can learn from each other. I think the invitation is, is to have humility and hunger. Humility that maybe there is something here that you are missing because you're a 21st century American that hasn't had kind of like everything there might be to know in the world. And hunger because maybe there is something for your soul that could nourish you in this story of scripture. So three things, if we're gonna live into this a bit more deeply in the months and years ahead together. Three, three encouragements, number one, Read and reread. So I started reading the Bible when I was 16 years old, and I, I didn't know anything. And so if some of you are there, you're like, I don't know anything. I just barely started. Like I, don't, like, I don't know where these books are. These people, I come to church, it seems like people are quoting things and flying all over the place. And I'm like, I don't know. You know, it's like, I remember the first time I ever went to a gym, you know, and uh, I went to go work out. You know, I had had... Um, <laughs> Alicia's sister at the time was dating a bodybuilder. And, so, and she, they had a spa in their backyard. And so I would go out there and he would go out there and we'd take off our shirts and I'd be like, I need to work out, you know? So, <laughs> and, But I remember going to a gym and being so intimidated. You know, anybody been there? You know, you walk into a gym, you're just like, I don't know how to use this equipment. And like, I just, like, I have like 10 pounds on each side over there. That guy over there was like, you know, and um, sometimes you can go to church and feel like that. You can feel like I, I, like people seem to get it. They know how to use everything. They Listen, this community is for you. Yeah. Wherever you are at on your spiritual journey, whether you are beginning today or you're not even sure you want to begin, you're just kind of investigating it, this is for you. Or you've been at this for 50 years, this is for you. And you can, wherever you're at with your, inner, your experience of the Bible, you can always go a little bit deeper. So I started reading the Bible a chapter a day when I was 16 years old. And over time, it's had a slow kind of drip impact on my life. So start reading and then rereading Scripture And we've given you a a Bible reading plan in uh, the Abide booklet. Maybe if you don't have a Bible reading plan, you can try that. It takes you through the New Testament once in a year and uh, about a third of the Old Testament. Second, study. Kind of look below the surface. Take some notes. Ask questions. I remember uh, an old preacher named Warren Wiersbe used to say, if you don't talk to your Bible, your Bible's not going to talk to you. And what he means is like, engage, like, like, why, what? What do you mean by that? What would that look like if I believed that, if I lived that, if I practiced that? And ask those questions and take notes and study and then invite the community, uh, people who have gone before you, who maybe know more than you, people who are, who are, who are you know, Who've gone before us in church history? You can read books and draw upon resources. Of course, we are, we live in such a good day today to, to draw upon resources. You can go online, and there's treasure troves of resources. And so, let me just give you a couple great ones. One is Bible Project. Anybody here, just by show of hands, ever seen the Bible Project? So check it out. Great little introductions to books. And the introductions are like little five to seven v- minute videos with little cartoons. And yet they're rooted in great scholarship. And I, I will watch those before I preach a book. Because I learn from them. So uh, Bible Project is a great resource. A little, <laughs> you also might try Through the Bible with Josh Swanson. It's <laughs> I was laughing this morning. I was going through these slides. And I was like, oh, I like it. I, I like the quality between the Bible project and Josh Swanson podcast. It's little, it's different. But, um, but what I'm doing there is just walking through uh, the New Testament actually right now, verse by verse. So if you want a little teaching on the New Testament, you can read the text in the morning and then listen to it in the afternoon or something. Double up on the text and get some insight. Um, but, but study it. But most importantly, as you approach the Bible, think and pray, and contemplate. Scripture is God-breathed, which means that we can discern a word from God in the text of Scripture. Now, it's not always the same. It's not always a nugget. I feel like, oh, if everything was simply like the verse we put on the pillows or the calendars. Like, it's, it's way more interesting, though, than that, and demands more from you than that but engage and think and pray and just say, God, I come to you in this practice, and I ask you to speak and encourage and help me to understand and to believe. Pray, and then try praying the Scriptures. I I will oftentimes just pray three Psalms or four Psalms when I sit down, and just, it's a way of praying the text of Scripture, and God has given us words that we can speak back to God in His mercy. And it gets in you, it forms you. And contemplate, contemplate, think. And this promise attends our engagement, our thoughtful engagement with scripture. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. It yields its fruit not immediately, This is not a Bible pill you take to get rid of the depression or the anxiety or whatever. No, 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 no. This is a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long process of maturity and growth that oftentimes is not even discernible to the naked eye until long after. It yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do, In other words, over the long course of your life, digging your roots into the wisdom of God as he has revealed himself in these texts of Scripture, allowing your own story to be shaped by the story of God in Scripture, allowing your hope to be placed in the Savior, Jesus, who is revealed in Scripture. Over the long course of your life of doing this, you will find yourself becoming more and more a person of wisdom and stability, and goodness, and love. I'll close with this. Tim Keller put it like this. He said, people who meditate become people of substance who have thought things out and have deep convictions, who can explain difficult concepts in simple language, and who have good reason behind everything they do. Many people do not meditate. They skim everything Picking and choosing on impulse, having no thoughtful reasons for their behavior. Following whims, they live shallow lives. May God make us a community that lives deep lives in God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and we wanna thank you for this wild and diverse array of writings that we call the Bible. These stories and poems and commands, these letters, these apocalyptic visions, these fiery prophets, and most centrally, those biographers who wrote about your son Jesus and all he did and all that he accomplished in our behalf. God, may you make us a community that is rooted in your word, that is truly saturated in and shaped by and submitted to scripture. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, the one to whom everything in the Bible ultimately points and leads. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who is the very living word among us, amen.